welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and American manufacturing of PCBs. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 388. Our guest this week is David Schild, Executive Director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, an established leader and trusted advocate. David has over 20 years of experience managing political involvement, corporate public relations, and public policy efforts for the aerospace and defense industry. Thank you, David, for coming on our podcast. Hey, happy to be here. My bio always tells engineers that uh, I should be kept away from complex tools and machinery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. So, David, can you give us a brief overview of what your role as executive director at the uh, Printed Circuit Board Association of America is about, and actually just about PCBAA as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the PCBA was started in 2021 because a lot of industry leaders sort of collectively realized that we needed a voice in the public policy space in the same way that the semiconductor crowd has had a really sort of aggressive and out there voice over the last couple of years. And this is companies that a lot of you are probably familiar with, maybe places where your, your listeners uh, work right now, uh, you know, Calumet, Summit, TTM, Sanmina, Inselectro, Isola, right? These, these very large, you know, very involved, not just board shops, right? But assemblers, high-end engineering processes. But, you know, fundamentally, the folks making the boards sort of realized, and the raw materials suppliers, right? The assemblers, Everybody in this chain basically understood that we had a lot of public policy issues that needed to be tackled, and we can certainly get into those. But there wasn't an association really advocating solely for PCBs, and especially those made in America. You know, the larger reason for our existence is the contraction of the industry. It's probably not news to anybody who has a career in print circuit boards that, you know, 25 years ago, let's say around the turn of the century, the U.S. had 30% of market share in terms of PCB production. We're down to 4% today. In real terms, that's 2,200 companies making boards in the year 2000. That's 150 companies making boards today in 2023. So just a really, really steep contraction. We can get into sort of how that happened and why. But that small group of companies that's left said, hey, we see what's going on with semiconductors. There's a whole microelectronics ecosystem, right? Chips don't float. There's a stack here with advanced packaging, with boards, with chips that all has to work to make modern life possible. So we need some attention, right? And so our, our mission is sort of educate, advocate, and legislate. And the educate part really is the most important. You guys know what boards are. You live this stuff. Your listeners design and build this stuff. Guess who doesn't understand it as well as they need to? The folks who write the laws, the folks who fund you know initiatives with, with our tax dollars at, at all levels, right? State, federal, and local. So that's why we exist. And I run, you know, the day-to-day operations and our our advocacy and our our public education campaigns. So I am curious, you mentioned the drop from 30% to 4%. Uh, Can you go a little bit more into that and what is the cause of that? Is it a consolidation or is it just shipping overseas or what? Yeah, I think a lot of things are at play, right? And, And we as an industry have to take some responsibility for the fact that when we say market forces, right, we're talking about choices that that big companies and small companies made. But certainly, I think, you know, two things come into play, right? First, we we had an incredibly global economy sort of emerge over the last, let's say, half century, right? A lot of trade barriers fell, and you saw the market pushing a lot of manufacturing into, into lower cost areas. It's not purely a labor issue, and we can talk about that too, right? It's not as, as simple as that. There is some consolidation, right? I mean, you certainly see some companies, and I mean, even just recently, right? Um, mergers from you know companies like American Standard Circuits has had acquisitions. Uh, you know, other companies have grown and, and consolidated. That's part of it. But when you talk about like two thousand to one hundred and fifty, it's mostly offshoring, right? It's mostly a move to primarily Asia, right? There is still a significant portion of the market in Europe. There's some other work in North American countries, but if you go overseas now, you're going to see a ton of work in. Taiwan, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, the Philippines, et cetera. And that's driven by, you know, a lot of uh, economic factors. It didn't happen overnight. We're not going to solve the problem overnight. But ultimately, it came down to a lot of OEMs and others saying, hey, I'm buying boards for a variety of purposes, and I'm going to buy the lowest cost board out there. And that just, like a lot of things, right, uh, that we manufacture, moved out of the United States. And it's only recently that we've started to sort of pay attention to the consequences of those movements. For a long time, inexpensive goods on our shelves were easy, were cheap, were quick. We enjoyed that. And boy, didn't the COVID-19 pandemic kind of 
call into relief, like, oh, maybe it's a little risky to have all of our supply chains stretching across the Pacific Ocean, right? Maybe that's not the best solution. And the chips guys sort of got there first and realized it first. There's other political implications. There's other sort of workforce implications. But um, this move to do broadly what we call reshoring, right? And I use the term rebalancing because it's not balanced when you've got 4% of, of the market. That's sort of captured the public imagination, the imagination of lawmakers and policymakers. There's a lot of economic reasons to do it. There's a lot of sort of national security and economic security reasons to do it. And then there's like another resilient, secure supply chain reason to do it too, so that we don't revisit these situations where, hey, I can't get a truck because we can't make the chips for it. And I can't get the materials that I need. And there's empty store shelves and, you know, issues that we all lived through starting in 2020. We may have gotten past some of those bottlenecks in the supply chain, but people are still nervous about, well, the next time something interrupts life, are we going to be able to sort of respond? Do you feel like you've seen the needle move kind of in the other direction? In terms of just, are we are we going too far towards, you know, reshoring? Well, I mean, have you felt that the reshoring efforts are taking effect now? Yeah, I think, look, the CHIPS Act is a model that a lot of people can look to now on a variety of fronts, right? First, the public education campaign. Boy, did Intel and TSMC and Global Foundries and Micon do a great job of telling everybody in America, hey, we don't have life without CHIPS. Right. I mean, you know, my joke is sometimes that, you know, the um, CEO of Intel should be sending thank you notes to the CEO of Ford, because if we don't have F-150s sitting at the port of Long Beach waiting on chips, people don't understand how important chips are. Right. And um, that wasn't, you know, one single choice that led us to that point. It was a, a series of choices over many, many years. But, yeah, I think here's what I think. Right. I, I think, Stephen, that what we've seen is people start to understand, OK, I need to take deep looks into my supply chains. I talked to a lot of like U.S purchasing leads and, and, you know, heads of supply and, and, and ops. And they're like, we've started to look really, really seriously at our supply chain so that we don't have issues where we wait a week this year and next year we wait 52 weeks, right? And unacceptable delays, for example. The general public is starting to come around to this idea too. And if that's the sort of pure play economics, right? Insuring against future challenges. And then there's also you know, we've got to talk about it, right? A, a geopolitical sort of dynamic where you go, well, it's not just where we depend. It's not just, you know, that we depend on other other nations to do this. It's that maybe they're not in always reliable or friendly locations. And that's kind of a real issue too, especially when you consider where a lot of this technology ends up. So, you know, this idea about industrial policy, right? We talk about this a lot, like, oh, the government's getting involved or putting its hands on the scales. The U.S. didn't invent industrial policy, and we're not the only country to do industrial policy. And the reality is when you say X region of the world has a monopoly or, or a big share of the market in anything, right, textiles, aircraft production, microelectronics manufacturing, could be anything, you're probably going to, when you start to peel the onion, start to see government action behind that. It's not an absence of government action. It's we made the land cheaper. We made the labor cheaper. We relaxed the regulations. We incentivized production. Every government is doing this to try and stay competitive. It, that's not a secret. But I get a little uh, annoyed when people are like, oh, the U.S. is trying to use the government to solve these market problems. It's like, no, every government is trying to give you know, their economy an advantage. This is going on in a lot of industries, right? It's not unique to microelectronics. But we're playing catch up in a way. And boy, we're not the only ones. Look at the Europeans, right? Spain passes its own version of the CHIPS Act a year after we pass the CHIPS Act. The Brits, the French, the Germans, they're all talking about it too. So, you know, we might have gotten there first on, on microelectronics policy, but the rest of the world sees what this is and sees how valuable it is. And akin to energy production or akin to agriculture or anything else, there's going to be a healthy global competition. Yeah, so you mentioned that the uh, the CHIPS Act kind of was paving the way for this kind of policy. And so now we have the PCBs Act, which I like how PCB is an acronym for printed circuit boards. And then the PCBs Act is also an acronym, but for a different acronym, which is Protecting Circuit Boards and Substrates Act. That's, that's my favorite kind of thing. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. Uh, you know, a lot of us spent a lot of time pouring over the, the naming for this. And we've got you know, bipartisan congressional champions, which I can talk about. But what's interesting is that when we introduced this in the last Congress, the 117th Congress, the bill was limited to printed circuit boards, right? And we had a pretty good definition. And then as the technology evolved, but we also started to talk about the stack, right? The semiconductor with the IC substrate, with the board, we realized that, oh my gosh, we got to protect the substrate market. We got to actually bring some of the substrate market back because as dire of a situation as we have with boards, 
it's almost even worse with sort of advanced packaging and substrates, right? I mean, we're doing 1% of the world's supply here in the States. So the story that I sort of like to talk about is we're going to go to Chandler, Arizona. We're going to build a gigantic semiconductor factory. That's great. That's wonderful. Good jobs, great engineering careers, innovation, owning the technology. Very good for our country. Okay. What are we going to do with those semiconductors? Well, they got to get they got to get packaging. That packaging's got to go to a board. If that work is all overseas, you're going from Chandler to the Port of Long Beach, across the Pacific Ocean, maybe into any number of allied or perhaps, you know, adversarial locations, but that's not the kind of manufacturing node that, that people envision, right? Secretary Gina Raimondo from the Commerce Department talks a lot about manufacturing nodes, and the way I think of it is sort of the way we talked about the automotive industry for a long time, right? Final assembly of cars is being done in Detroit. Well, where are the brake pads being made? Where are the, you know, where are the airbags being made? Where are the wiper blades being made? Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, like you had these sort of ecosystems of manufacturing grow up together because it made sense for these things to be co-located, right? Concentrations of brain power, concentrations of R&D, ease of transportation, putting things in a local spot. So when I see gigantic Intel and Micron and TSMC factories getting built, you know, my reaction is like, great, where's the rest of the ecosystem, right? Let's drive down that main boulevard past the chip factory to see the substrates and the boards. So we really are talking about the whole process and everything bringing that back to America. I think we need to. And, and again, I'm very clear with everybody I talk to. We live in a global economy. People ask me sometimes, like, what's the right number? Okay, we used to do 30% of the boards. Now we're down to four. Tell me where we need to end up. I don't know where we need to end up. Our industry will tell you that the commercial demand signal right now is very, very weak. And we've seen this in other national security arrangements, right? I'll explain why I'm going there, is that you've got to have a strong commercial sector to support a strong military defense and, and aerospace sector, right? And you see it with aircraft manufacturing, right? Boeing commercial has got to be strong so Boeing defense can be strong. You see it in space launch. Government contracts have got to be strong so commercial is strong. And so because the commercial market has really collapsed with PCBs, we can still make and we are required to make a lot of national security boards here in America. But of course, those those are co-located production sites, right? Those are a lot of the same engineers. Those are a lot of the same technicians, same factories, same facilities. So when you're weak on one side, it's much harder to keep the other side up and running and healthy and strong. Parker and I talked about it multiple times in the past, especially throughout COVID. But if you were trying to, say, avoid a particular location for getting your equipment manufactured, it's always difficult because if you dig deep enough, it usually ends up going or being manufactured, or at least the raw materials come from the place that maybe you are trying to avoid. So the including the substrates in the PCBs Act, I don't know, that opens up quite a bit more there because it's not just the board manufacturing. Yeah, and you know, the other thing that's going on, Stephen, is a lot of board guys and gals want to get into advanced packaging, right? They want to get into substrates. I mean, the way the technology is evolving, and I'm the non-engineer in this conversation, is we're getting closer to sort of a synergy of boards and packaging, right? And you talk about, you know, things like chiplets and, and, and you talk about ultra high density interconnects, right? And the way that things are sort of getting designed, you know, board makers want to innovate. So they want to get more into the advanced packaging space. They want to get more into the substrate space and be great partners to our friends in the semiconductor space who are looking to that. And, you know, one of the ways I tell it to, to policymakers, to people on Capitol Hill is, you brought back the chip factories because you want to invent the next generation of chips. I totally agree. We should invent and build those in America, a large segment of that market. What do you want to do about the next generation of the rest of the stack? Chips don't float, as we say. Do you want to just own one part of that or do you want to own sort of the whole stack? And people kind of cock their head a little bit and go, well, what do you mean? We're going to invest, you know, Intel, Micron, TSMC, they're going to make the next generation of chips here in America. Uh-huh. Next generation chips need next generation boards, next generation packaging. We can invent that here, but you've got to have some policies to help us do that. So the the PCBs Act, what are the policies that are in this act that enable this to happen, I guess? Is that a good way to put it? Yeah. So there's two major components, right? And I'll talk about sort of the size that they service. The first is there's there's money, right? There's direct grants. Most people know the CHIPS Act as being a $52 billion fund administered by the Department of Commerce for semiconductor excuse me, manufacturing. And of course, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of hoops you got to jump through. That money is not going to be given out very, very quickly. It's probably going to happen 
uh, over a decade, right? Maybe say $5 billion a year is what a lot of people are talking about. But that money is designed to do workforce training, break ground on new facilities, buy tooling, do research and development, all that stuff. Our bill calls for this a $3 billion investment administered in a similar way. We would anticipate the Department of Commerce would say, okay, here's eligibility for $3 billion. Any company, again, let's take Calumet in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Let's take you know TTM, which is sort of spread all over the country in places like New Jersey and New York and you know Utah. You guys can come and say, hey, we're going to invest in the things that we need to have more capacity for PCB manufacturing to have PCB innovation, we want a, a segment of that $3 billion, right? And there's a public policy argument, just like there was with semiconductors, that we should be doing that, that we should incentivize that and you know, make those investments, literal investments in the form of, of taxpayer funds. The second part, and I think this is the more important part of our bill, is a tax credit. Because ultimately, just giving out some subsidies or saying we want to invest doesn't drive the price down. It helps build capacity. It helps for expansion. But does it solve the problem of a board from Asia is significantly cheaper than a board made in America? It does not. What we need to do is get the playing field a little closer to level. So our bill contains a 25% tax credit for the purchaser on the purchase of American-made printed circuit boards and substrates. So now, if I'm Lockheed Martin, if I'm Dell Computer, if I'm IBM, if I'm any big OEM that buys boards, right, at large scale or small... I get the tax credit for buying a board made in America. What does that do? Well, it creates a demand signal, especially on the commercial side, because people who are buying, you know, again, boards at scale, think about anybody that's making thermostats, anybody that's making um, garage door openers, uh, you know, anything like this, you know, where are PCBs? They're everywhere chips are, where are chips? They're in almost everything that has electricity running through it today. So, okay. I want to buy American or I want a portion of my supply chain to be in America because I'm really dependent on one or two locations very far away where I, I, I'm feeling issues of trust. I'm feeling issues of reliability. How do I go back to a U.S. supplier? Well, the tax credit gets you there because now, you know, we don't have to make some radical change to the business model in the United States. We simply say, when you buy this board, Uncle Sam gives you a tax break. And people go, oh, well, all of a sudden it's cost competitive to do that. So, you know, it's not a tax break for, for my guys, my, my producers. It's a tax break for their customers. And what are their customers hopefully going to do with that? Buy a lot more and source a lot more in America. So there's the, the monetary incentive to the businesses to actually create the factories, but then to all the people who utilize those factories. Yeah. And, you know, here's the other thing, guys, that I would, I would mention is what we saw with the CHIPS Act was private money follows public action. The numbers that I'm looking at say the government has put up $52 billion in investment for semiconductors. As a result of that, today, $400 billion in private money has come off the sidelines. Because what does Wall Street do? What does somebody in a boardroom do? They go, okay, U.S. government's invested in chips. U.S. government takes semiconductor manufacturing seriously. U.S. government believes in this. Time to get this money out of the bank and deployed in manufacturing. I fully believe that we'll see a similar phenomenon with the rest of the stack. If the government acts, the money that's sitting on the sidelines, the business case, it starts to emerge. And of course, there's so much more money in the private sector for this than the government's ever going to put up. Perhaps this is a little pedantic of a question here, but we, we sort of roll back from the chips. If we're incentivizing chip manufacturing through government action, the chips need to go on boards. So now we're incentivizing the boards, but then the boards need to go inside of an enclosure and the enclosure needs to be blah, blah, blah. And it needs to be all connected. So how far does that start to get re, you know, wound up into we're now subsidizing all manufacturing? It's a great question. And I think, you know, I, that's again, why do I use the term rebalancing? Because I think that, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, there are going to be boards coming out of China, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, the Philippines, and hopefully more out of Mexico, more out of Canada, more out of the United States. We're just not going to have this radical imbalance, right? Where there's a super concentration in a few locations in Asia and, you know, probably an over concentration in China specifically, right? Which presents any number of, of concerns. You know, is there going to be a, a trade association for uh, inkjet printers? <laughs> uh, it's a good question, right? I don't know. I mean, you know, electronics manufacturers are facing the same kind of question, right? I think what's fundamental and ubiquitous, though, right, are these are these microelectronic core components. And, and believe it, we could have a separate show, I'm sure, about 
the raw materials, right? I mean, my I have laminate makers. I have specialty chemical guys, you know, like DuPont, for example, right? They're at the beginning of, of the supply chain, right? They're turning woven glass into printed circuit boards, right? That's what AGY is doing in South Carolina. Well, why do I mention AGY? Because they're the last woven glass producer in America. We lose those guys and we don't make woven glass anymore at all. You know, there's a lot of light. Oh yeah, you know, that's all I was going <laughs> right? to bring up because there was a uh, a major resin manufacturer that builds all the resin. Oh, they don't build all of it, but a major component of PCBs is resin. Yes. And it was a fire at a Chinese factory and it was like, I don't know the exact number, but it was something like over 10% of all the resin in the world they made. And it affected every single PCB for the next like eight months was affected. Yep. Because of that. We're down uh, from a raw materials perspective, right? We're down to a lot of single or damn near single points of failure. Pardon my language, right? I mean, copper foil is a big one. Woven glass is a big one. Specialty chemicals is a big one. That's not a great place to be because when you lose the entirety of your domestic capacity, all kinds of new problems sort of emerge, right? And so the single point of failure thing, I mean, that's another thing where people's eyes light up, right? When I go up to Capitol Hill and I'm like, everything I'm showing you here has woven glass. And they're like, okay, I don't even know what that is, but I thought this was just a piece of green plastic. And it's like, no, there's a lot of engineering that goes into these boards. What do you mean if this company goes out of business, we don't make this anymore? Well, and then you start to tell that story times four, times five, times six, and people get understandably anxious and nervous and go, oh, well, I can see a scenario where we, we don't get this. We don't get this when we need it. Someone can turn the lights off on us pretty quickly. It's like, yeah, that's that's where we're headed. So we're trying to make noise now when we can act and when we can make a difference. I, I tell people the semiconductor guys sort of hit the panic button at 13%. We used to have a much larger market share of semiconductor production, right? And of course, a lot of it went to Taiwan. A lot of it went to Asia. But when we got to about 13%, that's when the chips guys said, we got a problem. We got to make more in America. And we're at four. So, I, you know, I got to hit that button twice as hard. So where is the PCBs Act right now? It's been introduced in Congress, right? Yes. So it was uh, introduced earlier this spring. Bipartisan support, right? We've got Representative Blake Moore from uh, Utah, Republican, Representative Anna Eshoo from California, Democrat. We're building co-sponsors. And, you know, what we're looking to do is have a Senate companion bill. you got to have one in the House and one in the Senate, both introduced. So we're working on that as well. And it's a challenging environment in Washington, right? I'm, I'm always trying to play it straight with people. Uh, the appetite for spending is not real significant right now. Um, the bill has been referred to the committees of jurisdiction that have to review it. So when we talk about hearings and testimony and study of the bill itself, you know, it's going to be places like the Science and Technology Committee, the Energy and Commerce Committee that are going to look at this bill. It's got a tax provision, which kind of hits ways and means. You know, the legislative process is slow. And I, I try to manage expectations with people when I say, look, it's a big deal to even get a bill introduced. Then we got to go out and generate co-sponsors, right? 435 potential co-sponsors in the House, 100 potential co-sponsors in the Senate. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of shoe leather getting getting burned up. And, and we're competing. Washington is an extremely competitive environment because imagine, and this is my life, right? Tomorrow, I have a call with a representative from Texas, and we're going to talk about, hey, a lot of PCBs are made in your state, a lot of you know really critical applications of printed circuit boards, and we've got this bill, and let me tell you what it's all about. Well, 15 minutes after I walk out of that office, in walks the corn growers, and they've got a real specific concern about agriculture, and they want to talk about it. And 15 minutes after that, it's the steel workers. And 15 minutes after that, it's the local Eagle Scout who's going to be recognized, and so on and so forth. And that's your day on Capitol Hill, right? So when I say a competitive political environment, I mean the semiconductor guys really put their money where their mouth was. They spent the better part of 40 months getting the CHIPS Act passed. It didn't happen overnight, right? It was a long, hard slog, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of education efforts. And coincidentally, a lot of things in the news helped draw attention to this issue. But having a bill introduced, having language that I think is very strong, and I can talk about some of the other legislative achievements that we've already you know, rung out in terms of victories. It's a long road ahead of us, but I, we've got a great team. We've got a great industry coalition. I think most now of the companies in the space understand what we're doing, and we're starting to talk to more people sort of upstream and downstream, right? As I said, more more raw material suppliers, more assemblers, uh, more testing folks who go, oh, well, this kind of hits me, right? And it's like, yeah, of course this hits you. This hits everybody in microelectronics. Well, and I can only imagine that one of the tactics that the PCPs Act is 
is using is just riding the coattails of the CHIPS Act because the CHIPS Act's already gone through. And this is, in terms of how much money we're talking about, this is less than 10% of the same thing that has the same, I don't know, scary factor to it of, oh my gosh, we need to address this. Yeah, I think that, again, I have a ton of respect for what the semiconductor guys did over, again, a more than a four-year period. Uh, your listeners won't see it. I'm, I'm holding up just a dishwasher board here. But what I do is I walk into an office, right, and I point to this populated board with all of its components, and I point to the chip, and I say, we just spent $52 billion on the chip. The rest of the board does not have any public support right now. Everything else you see here does not have public investment, does not have public policies. And you know, maybe the analogy is that we just spent $52 billion to get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but all we really bought was the bread. So it's time to get the peanut butter and the jelly and the other slice or not get end up with what we wanted at the end of the day. And why did we do the CHIPS Act? We wanted to solve for some very specific economic and national security problems. And maybe it's uncomfortable to admit that that doesn't get us there, that that's a down payment, that that's a first step. But it's it's the reality. And you're right. It helps to say to a lawmaker, for example, who voted for the CHIPS Act, hey, you see that brand new facility going up in Columbus, Ohio? Yeah, absolutely, I do. That's awesome. We love that. Guess what? Those chips are going to my factories. Oh, what do you mean your factories? Well, boards and substrates. I don't know what that is. Okay, well, let us tell you. And then they go, well, where is most of this work? Well, it's overseas. Well, where overseas? Well, you're maybe not going to like that answer either, right? <laughs> and so you start to have those conversations and you know the light bulb goes off. And that's, again, that's we're a new association, guys. I mean, the reason we're two years you know, old going on three years is because prior to that, nobody was talking about this kind of stuff. And, you know, board makers were out there doing their work, producing great products, innovating. But I think lately there's been an understanding that the market's not going to necessarily solve for this by itself. We need some public action. You know, I would almost argue with your peanut butter and jelly analogy that not that you get the bread. It's almost like here's a bag of peanuts. Make a peanut butter jelly sandwich. <laughs> and I like that better. What, what I'm almost, I'm curious, how was the response when you point to a board and you just point to the little black square that magic happens in and say, this is what you spent 52 billion? Is there kind of this idea that's like, oh, I thought we were getting the whole thing? Do people feel cheated in that? Or is it like, oh, we need to really spin up some more action here? Well, so your listeners will appreciate this statement. There are a lot of smart people in government. There are a lot of smart people who we've elected to Congress. I will say that. There are not a lot of engineers, and specifically, there are not a lot of microelectronics engineers. So the, the answer to your question is no. Most people do not understand when, when you hold up a board exactly what's going on. Now, we will walk them through a production facility, right? And I can show them from soup to nuts like, look, you know, it's sand on a beach, and the next thing you know, it's inside of a Javelin missile, which everybody gets today, right? That's a product everybody's heard of. It's literally raw materials, and now it's lifting satellites into low Earth orbit. Okay, I get it. There's a lot of work that has to be done here. We should be leading in this space. you know. But the answer to your, to your question, Stephen, is I think it's, it is kind of a light bulb moment. And there's a tendency to, to pat yourself on the back to do victory laps, right? This is politics. People want to go, we solved it. We solved it, everybody. But the reality is it's a down payment. And the easiest way you can explain that it's a down payment is just look at what other countries have spent to capture the semiconductor market over the past 20 or 30 years. It's not 52 billion. It's orders of magnitude more than that that other governments have spent in the form of subsidies and tax breaks and things of that nature. So I think down payment is the way that we ought to talk about the CHIPS Act. I think first step is the way that we ought to talk about the CHIPS Act, which is not to undermine the achievement. It's very real. Boy, if you go to Arizona, if you go to New York, if you go to Ohio, those communities are, that are coming up around future chip fabs, it's incredible. We should celebrate it. I, I'm all for politicians taking that banner, taking that lectern out to the field and saying, behind me, you're going to see the future. Go for it. Do it. All I'm asking is, is that we sort of keep the ball rolling. Yeah, I can see a little bit of uh, perhaps shock just looking like, oh, we spent all this money and that's for, you know, one or two or three parts that go on this larger thing that, okay, there's more to be done here. It's an ecosystem. That's the way that we explain it, right? There's a whole microelectronics ecosystem here. And by the way, I usually, I will congratulate any elected official who voted for the CHIPS Act, right? Because I go, look, you know, good for you. A lot of foresight, a lot of vision. Congratulations. We're not done. And here's the upside in Washington, right? I'm not being cynical or overly political when I say this. The upside in Washington is, you know, did you vote for it because you wanted more secure and resilient supply chains? Well, that's what we are doing for you as well. Did you vote for it because you see a global competition with, let's say, China and you want to make sure that we're pacing? 
yeah, absolutely, our bill does that as well. Did you vote for it because you want to see facilities go up, people get hired, jobs, public investment, a thriving economy, careers? Great. Ours does that too, right? There's really not a lot of downside or liability or risk for any elected official to vote for this. What there is is a challenge on spending, and there's a challenge, and you saw this a little bit with the CHIPS Act, for people using terms like corporate welfare. Well, we're not going to bail out companies, and we're not going to put our hand on the scales, and we're going to let the market decide – Great, fine. I challenge you to look at anybody in the board space, anybody in the substrate advanced packaging space and say, oh, these are the biggest companies in the world and they don't need any help at all. I mean, that's not, walk through these shops. That's not the impression that you're going to get and that's not the reality. And, you know, elected officials have got to make a choice. You want to own a significant portion of this market? You want to invent the next generation of technologies? You want to watch somebody else do it? I think it's a pretty obvious answer. So earlier in the podcast, we were talking about so like the incentive here is for companies that will get a tax credit buying uh, USA made boards. And before that, we had a, a tariff on PCBs that were coming over from China as well. But that doesn't actually look at the, what the problem, what the actual thing is, is the boards over from China are just they're just cheaper. And mm-hmm. you you mentioned the labor being cheaper, but that wasn't the only thing. So what is the only sure. other what's the other things? There's a lot of things going on, right? I think, you know, this is where the the short-sighted view would be like, well, we're going to have to relax all of our environmental legislation, or we're going to have to find a way to get Americans to work for for much lower wages in order to be competitive. That's an overly simplistic view. Um, You can go to plenty of places in Asia where the land is free. The roads to the factory are built by the government. The labor costs are subsidized by local governments. Even the tax credits. I mean, when you invest in R&D, I want to make sure I get this right. You know, when you invest an R and D dollar in China, you get a four hundred percent tax credit on that. Meaning, if you spend a hundred dollars on R and D, the Chinese government lets you take a four hundred dollar tax credit in China against that investment. What is it in the United States? Well, it's zero right now. Yeah, how do you compete against that? So, so like, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, this I think overly simplistic view that like, well, we're just going to have to pay people less, and we're going to have to like let people dump chemicals in the rivers, and that's how we'll get cheap American boards. Absolutely not. This is going to be a competition, right? All these countries are, I mean, look, look, Europeans want to get more of this back. The Europeans can't all of a sudden invent, you know, cheaper labor, right? They have the same challenges we do with with getting talented workers and they've got to pay people commensurately. And, um, you know, they're going to have environmental legislation and they're going to have all the costs of doing business that exist in North America, if not more. And so everybody looks at this, I think, and says it was government policy that led to lower manufacturing costs. But, you know, here's the thing about a, a cheaper board that might come from overseas, right? It, it does come with some costs that maybe are not economic. There is a point where this gets past dollars and cents, where you go, okay, what are the end-use applications of these? And where do we want those things manufactured? What are the IP protections on, on a lot of this stuff? What is the status of labor and the status of workforces? And, you know, there, if you look at the reasons to do this, there are plenty of economic reasons. But secure and resilient supply chains aren't purely direct cost related, right? When you say, okay, if we concentrate all of our manufacturing in one spot and that spot gets turned off, shut down for COVID, destroyed by a natural disaster, turned off by the local government, well, okay, those things were cheaper while we were trying to buy them, but now they're just not available and we can't pivot to the left or the right and find an alternative source. Okay, now you can't sell your product at all or you can't manufacture it. Is that going to hit your bottom line? Sure in a different way than unit costs hit your bottom line, but it definitely, it hits it, right? So secure and resilient has an economic component, but it doesn't come out to like a per unit cost in the same way as maybe the issue that got us here. And and I think some companies are kind of waking up to that, right? COVID was this giant wake up call that, oh, this global economy has some weak points, right? It has some risk when we over-concentrate in one, you know, geographic, political, uh, whatever location. So, um, you know, that's a long way of saying that there's a lot of factors at play. And, you know, we can talk about workforce and education, too, because that's another component of it. Like, do we have the people we need to, to do this kind of work? Um, I would even extend our conversation and say it's not going to be solved solely at the federal level. I mean, you start getting into, you know, land use stuff is mostly state and local. Economic incentives and educational incentives that tie back to big universities, those are mostly outside of the federal government's purview anyway. So what the folks in Washington are doing is important. But boy, government of New York's getting involved. Government of Arizona's getting involved. City of Chandler, Arizona's getting involved, right? I mean, this this extends up and down sort of the the public policy chain. 
Yeah, let's actually go into that next because we saw this recently with uh, TSMC, who's having they're building a big chip fab through the Chips Act in Arizona, and they're having a huge problem hiring. And this was something that we talked about, I think, about eight months ago on the podcast, where it was estimated that we would need 600,000 highly skilled engineers just to fill out the Chips Act over the next decade. And that's on top of the engineers that we're already currently training in our universities here in, in the United States. So how do we get to those numbers? You know, this is a challenge that's going to hit almost every sector of the manufacturing economy, maybe more broadly, anybody who considers themselves to be in the technology space. And it's a problem that's going to face the biggest companies in the world and some of the smallest mom and pop shops out there is where do we get the workers that we need? We're, you know, not producing the number of folks with the educational and technical backgrounds that we need to do this work. It's not all college educated folks, right? I mean, of course, there are, it's, it, there's analogies to the trades where you can come up inside of a board shop and learn a specific skill set and then be a very, you know, valued and important contributor to the team. But of course, it's electrical engineers, it's mechanical engineers. I, I talk about the example of signal integrity engineers who are critical for boards and, and board testing and making sure boards do what they're designed to do. We have to rely on a lot of H-1B visas to fill those slots all over the country. Why? Because we're not churning out enough signal integrity engineers out of our university systems. We don't have enough existing folks in the workforce. So we have to you know, bring in folks from other countries. And that's the economic reality for folks, not just in my space, but you know across the engineering space. I think that what you're seeing now is a recognition that we've got to get educational institutions incentivized. The partnership in Ohio is kind of a great example of this, right? And I could point to Indiana or Arizona as well. But like when you saw the groundbreaking for the new Intel facility near Columbus, Ohio, right? Who was at that groundbreaking? Well, you had officials from the Department of Commerce because there's a federal role. You had, you know, the senators from Ohio and you had the governor of Ohio and you had the local representatives from Ohio. But guess who else was on the stage? president of Ohio State University. Why? Because Ohio State now is going to have a center of education focused on the kinds of degrees that Intel is going to need at that facility in Columbus, right? There's this direct pipeline of, hey, if you study the following subjects or topics here at OSU, guess what, Buckeyes? You can go right down the road to the Intel facility that's being built to actually, you know, find a career in this. And so, other schools are starting to adopt that, and I, you know, you you can't expect America's university systems, you know, not to respond to to market forces too, right? They want to churn out graduates who can actually work, and so if they don't see capacity or they don't see demand, they're not going to produce all of these jobs. But if they see factories going up, if they see government tax credits, if they see an incentive to do manufacturing in America, okay, now we ought to be teaching more kids to do this. It's really interesting to have very specific tracks at a college that is dedicated to potentially even a particular location. And look, there's a local interest there, sure. But of course, we probably need more of these programs all over the country, right? If, if you were to do a survey sample of, you know, how many schools have the degrees that we actually need, and then you were to go to these companies and, you know, go to the hiring officers and say, what degrees do you actually need? Would there be perfect overlap? Probably not, right? We need to get those things aligned. But Believe me, the, the talent problem, I hear it mentioned more and more now from executive agency officials, from folks in the House and the Senate, from the academic community itself. Uh, folks understand that we're going to fall short in filling these factories. It doesn't do any good to buy all the advanced tooling, <laughs> pour the concrete, build the building, and then it's like, the parking lot's empty, fellas. Right? We don't have the workers. That's a hard problem to solve, right? Nobody should be under any illusions that, that this is going to happen overnight. It's a long, it's a long pipeline. It starts with STEM education, STEAM education, however you want to say it, at the elementary school level, at the at the junior high level, right? I mean, you know, my kids are at bricks and bots and robot engineering camps this summer because it's my hope that down the road, maybe this is something that they'll want to study. Maybe this is something they'll want to do. But you know, th that's where you got to start. We can't turn this on when you're 21 years old, right? We've got to turn on the interest and the passion and the the desire to maybe work in some of these fields and, and innovate and explore in these fields much, much younger. And have we been doing that for the last half century? Maybe not. Not as much as we should. I would definitely agree there. Like for the past 20 years, it's been all the manufacturing has been going overseas. So just manufacturing in general was just not a career path that a lot of people probably in America has ever thought about. That's exactly right. You know, we need to, the president said something in the State of the Union last year, which I liked, which was the things that we invent in America, we can make in America, 
Because, of course, the intellectual capital has, has been here for a long time. I mean, turn over an Apple device. It says designed in California, right? Doesn't say built in California. But, you know, where is that cutting edge stuff inside the world's biggest corporation, you know, being thought up and designed? Well, you know, right there in Cupertino, which is awesome. We can do more building here. And that's not to say that all of a sudden iPhones are coming back to America, right? I'm not under illusions there. But does Apple diversify its supply chain? I read the Wall Street Journal. They absolutely do. They're absolutely diversifying production. They don't want to be in one place anymore. And that's just, I think, good business sense. So can that diversification include domestic manufacturing? I believe it can. And you're right. Now, all of a sudden, there's a manufacturing career. We were talking you know, before the show about aerospace and defense, which is my background, and the careers you can have making radars, missiles, helicopters, space shuttle main engines, right? You could spend a lifetime in that space, and we need to offer the same option for folks in microelectronics. Absolutely. They're not going away. We're going to need them. But aerospace and defense, the bulk of that is already manufactured over here due to regulations and requirements. So what does this extend to outside of aerospace and defense? Like you just admitted, probably not cell phones, right? Apple's probably not going to bring that over here. So it's something in between, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm glad you brought this up because one of the things we talk about is we need to redefine critical applications, in my opinion. Right now, there's something called ITAR, right, which is a specific restriction on certain electronic and other components that have to go into critical defense systems. So, you know, if I'm making a Columbia-class submarine, guess what? A lot of that stuff has to, by rule, be made at trusted locations inside the United States. And I think we'd all agree that, yeah, we want to do that, right? The the, the way that these technologies are used, the missions these technologies go on, we got to trust it. We got to source it locally. But, okay, how do we define critical? What about banking? What about telecommunications? What about healthcare? What about the energy grid? Are those critical sectors of the economy? Should we really be sure about all of the components that are in our cell phone towers, they're in our banking servers, they're in our healthcare devices, they're running our hospitals and maybe our traffic lights and maybe our power plants? I think we should. I think we should be real sure about that stuff and where it comes from and can we trust it. When you start to define so many commercial sectors and, and technology sets as critical, then you can start putting in policies that say, hey, we should be buying domestically. That expands the commercial market. That creates the incentive to build factories, hire people, train the workforce. Seems really difficult to define because h- how do you how do you separate traffic light and thermostat? Like which which one needs to be here <laughs> and which one needs to be there? Let's I, put it that way. I, I, look, and the whole IoT thing gets gets even more yeah. complicated, right? Because all of a sudden, if everything is connected to the internet, then isn't everything critical? No, I think. Um, there are some government agencies that have gonna, done a good job of defining critical infrastructure. We need to think, I think we need to take a more expansive view of that. Um, we're still locked in many ways in an old mindset that says, ah, eh, if it's not painted with camouflage, yeah, we don't need to protect <laughs> what's inside of it. And it's like, guys, that's not, that's old thinking. Right? That's fighting the last war, right? It was a phrase they used in, in Washington. And we don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of people would probably freak out if like their cell phone just stopped working. You do not have to be imagining something to ask yourself, is this a way that nations engage in conflict these days, right? Do the lights go out? Does critical infrastructure stop working? Do telecommunications stop working? It's not hypothetical. I mean, it's happening right now. And so anybody in the Pentagon community would tell you they're thinking much more expansively. Anybody in the Department of Homeland Security would tell you they're thinking much more expansively. Never mind just the, and you know, we're talking sort of about nation state conflict and geopolitical conflict. What about just natural disasters? What about the next COVID-19 pandemic? You know, what about the next thing that shuts down a supply chain or shuts down a manufacturing site overseas? And now you need something that you rely on for modern life and you can't get it because you don't have a single factory domestically that makes it. You don't have a single engineer domestically who can build it. That's just not a secure place to be, right? That's having no backup plan, right? (laughs) That's the battery and the smoke detectors are dying and we don't have any batteries in the house. It's not a good situation. I wonder how much uh, civil unrest comes into play. Like what Parker was saying there, you know, if somebody loses access to their cell phone, yeah, sure, it might be first world problems, but really it would cause some some uh, distress, let's put it that way. But I interned at a power company way back in the day, and uh, they had a clock up on the wall that if power went out, this clock immediately started, and they had an hour to get the lights back on. And then beyond that, they had some markers on this clock that um, it was kind of like a 
like a thermometer in a way that would increase. And these markers on it were, you know, if you get past an hour, that's when you start getting nasty phone calls. Like, where's my power? Blah, mm -hmm. blah. If you get to two hours, it starts to really elevate and ramp. And once you start getting to a, a certain number of hours, people start going outside and start causing property damage. And it's kind of crazy how simple <laughs> like humans get when it comes to removing their creature comforts. So I almost wonder if those kinds of concepts are brought into this criticality that we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, we we use a phrase, PCBs make it possible, right? And we've got a sort of a video ad campaign that, that runs around this. And it's talking about, look, you know, when you get up in the morning and your alarm clock goes off, there was a PCB involved. And you go downstairs and the coffee maker turns on and there was a PCB involved. And you flip the light switch and probably inside the bulb now, because it's an LED, there's a printed circuit board. Like you can't get through your day without them but they're hidden and you don't see them and you don't think about them, right? The same way we used to treat, you know, semiconductors. The other part of this, I'm glad you touched on this, is what about the economy we want to build for ourselves? The green economy, the decarbonized economy. Okay, electric vehicle chargers, very, very reliant on cutting edge print circuit boards, right? Where are we going to make those? Well, companies like American Standard Circuits are making them. Companies like Aurora Circuits are making them. Other people are making them. Are we making them at the scale we need to, especially in the United States? No. All you have to do is start Googling terms like solar panels and wind turbines, and you start to go, oh, we really need a lot of this stuff? Yes, we do. Where is it made? Europe, China, Asia, not here. Not here at scale. Well, that's not good. We need to decarbonize. We need to have a green economy. We need to make these investments. It's the economy of the future. Whether you agree that that's going to happen very quickly or over a longer period of time, I think a lot of people would agree if we're wholly dependent on those technologies from overseas production – we're not going to get the best economic value out of it. We're going to be in a vulnerable position. And the growth ramp for that is, is huge. So let's do more of it in the United States. I mean, we talk about all the stuff we rely on today, but we're not talking about the stuff we have to build over the next 5, 10, 50 years and where we're going to build it. So looking forward, what do you think is the impact, the potential impact of the PCBA Act or the PCBs Act? And I'm going to add something a little bit beyond that. It's like, do you think that it is enough, or do you think it should be more? So I, I would characterize it as a down payment in the same way that we characterize the chip tax as a down payment. You know, that $3 billion, let's say that, you know, I get to write my magic lamp and tomorrow that bill is on the president's desk and it's signed. I am sure our industry can use a lot more than $3 billion, but that's what, you know, we can afford at this point. That's what we think is reasonable at this point. The 25% tax credit goes a long way towards incentivizing manufacturing. I think we have to see the market in action with that tax credit in place before we can say, okay, we're in a healthy spot. We're understandably nervous and anxious and concerned at 4% of global market share. If we see market share grow, if we see facilities you know, break ground, if we see that private money I, I talked about get off the sidelines and the industry is growing and expanding and capacity is getting more robust, okay, good, we're in a healthy place. We're not going away. I will tell you, we're not going to roll up the carpets if the PCBs Act gets passed. And I'll give you an example of sort of why that's, that, that's the case. We haven't even started talking about state and local incentives and what states need to do. We haven't even started talking about the world's biggest purchaser of, of PCBs, and it's probably not who you think, Apple or Amazon or, or Dell or HP. It's the government. It's the government, right? The government's buying more electronics than, than anybody else because it's putting electronics everywhere, not just in, in defense and aerospace applications, but across everything that it does. Are there Buy American provisions there? No, not right now, right? And so- there's a whole other thing to address there. I can talk about the Defense Production Act, right? Something that was a, a legislative win, a policy win for us where, um, you know, the DPA is a, an old law from the early 1950s that says the government can designate certain technologies as critical assets and then drop a lot of red tape to buy them faster. The example most people are familiar with is COVID, ventilators and things like that, right? We're going to declare ventilators uh, covered by the DPA, guess what? We can buy them a lot faster than we normally could. Red tape goes away. Purchasing power goes up. We did that in March with PCBs and substrates, right? The president stood up there. He was actually with the prime minister of Canada because they're doing some work on this as well and said, okay, I'm going to allocate $52 million, a down payment, and I'm going to put PCBs and substrates on the, on the DPA list. Great. Awesome. President of the United States says that these are critical technology set. That's a huge win. Now we got to appropriate the money. The EPA is really a hunting license. Now we got to put bullets in the gun, right? We got to actually have an appropriation for the government to actually go spend money on print circuit boards and substrates. So that's like a wholly aside from the PCBs Act, that's something PCBA is, is chasing after. Then you've got 
the National Defense Authorization Act, right? That's the policy arm of legislation in Washington for the Pentagon, right? Authorization is telling the Pentagon what to do, how to run. Appropriation is giving them the money to do it. The authorization bill has got a section in it that talks about commercial off-the-shelf technology and supply chains. And what it says specifically is inside your COTS technology set, you don't know where your stuff is coming from, right? An ITAR board has to be made at a trusted facility in the United States. What happens when a commercial board finds its way into a defense application? And we break that commercial component open and we start asking where all these things come from. We don't always like the answer. The Pentagon doesn't always like the answer. And they know that. So what we've done inside the NDAA is say by 2027, you have to have a plan to secure your commercial off-the-shelf technologies and make sure that the microelectronics inside are coming from places that we trust. And that's, again, that's still now four years away from implementation. The Pentagon has a long road ahead of it to make up a rule and a structure and a scheme to actually make that real. But PCBA in partnership with groups like the USPAE and IPC, we're sort of holding their feet to the fire every year in Congress when the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, moves forward to make sure that legislation is still there. So that when we get to 2027 and COTS technology is flowing into defense applications, we can say, don't worry, everything here, every component, we can trust it. We know where it comes from. It's it's a it's secure. Uh, it's resilient, right? And and that's, you know, that's a whole separate legislative and policy chase apart from the PCBs Act apart from DPA. I mean, it, you know, we've got a lot of reasons to exist and the focus right now is on this legislation, but I, you know, we're going to have years uh, ahead of us to, to chase a whole bunch of different initiatives and probably tackle problems that we don't even know about today. Yeah. It, it was interesting as when you were bringing up where the government is, the U S government buys most of the electronics where like the whole thing with like, let's say building infrastructure is about jobs and building local job, like building a road. Well, most time you have a contractor that's local to the area is getting the money to build that road. Well, when they put up the traffic lights, where did the money go to build electronics for that? Well, they it went overseas. So that I, I always view it as your tax dollars should be going back into the country itself. It shouldn't go to another country, right? And I'll tell you who does a great job of this right now is groups like the steel industry, groups like the fiber optics industry, you know, the, the guys who are doing, you know, the literal raw materials, they do a very good job of addressing this infrastructure question. It's exactly what you talked about, right? Every week in Washington is infrastructure week. That's the joke that we make. Well, you want to be, rebuild roads and bridges? Great. Steel, concrete, glass. I agree. I want my tax dollars going into my neighbor's house, <laughs> my neighbor's kid's college fund, right? Not, not necessarily somebody overseas. Again, global economy is going to be the way we're going to operate for the foreseeable future. We're not going to build giant walls metaphorically or literally around this country. But let's think more expansively about infrastructure. I used EV charging stations as an example, right? How many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of those are we going to build? Where do you want to design them? Where do you want to build them? Where do you want to put the advanced PCBs that make them possible? A lot of power generation, a lot of thermal loads, a lot of advanced technology that's got to go in to make sure that your F-150 Lightning charges and you get back on the road. Great. Okay. Let's not ship those things in from other countries if we don't have to, you know? And so there's any number of examples, depending on how broadly you define infrastructure, that would probably start to hit microelectronics. We're just not as established as the steel guys. We haven't been doing this as long. We haven't been fighting in Washington as long as the wind turbine guys or the, the oil guys or any, any industry that for a long time has had this push-pull, domestic versus offshore. They've been playing the game for a long time and they've gotten pretty good at it. They've gotten their constituencies, they've gotten their brand recognition, they've gotten their public education efforts out there. You know, we're coming a little bit new to the party here and, you know, we've got to grow and we've got to get bigger. I mean, that's one of my big focus areas is like, I got 33 individuals and companies as part of my association, but I've got 150 companies doing this. I've got hundreds of companies in the supply chain, right? Suppliers, testers, assemblers, critical materials. And that doesn't even include purchasers. I think anybody buying boards should be on my team. I really do because I'm chasing a tax credit for you. And occasionally I'll go into these big companies that are buying boards like at scale. And they're like, you know, why are you here? And it's like, you buy a lot of boards, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars of boards a year. Yeah. You want to do more manufacturing? Yeah. In the United States, how about a tax credit? And then your eyes kind of light up like, what are you talking about? It's like, well, we're chasing this. Get on the team, right? 
Because the reality of this is the economic footprint and the political footprint, that is what drives our chances of success. It is not a coincidence where these semiconductor factories are being built. It is not a coincidence, the economic impact that they have, right? I mean, there was some very careful and well-thought-out strategy that went into that. We need to do the same thing. And I think right now we estimate that we've got a pretty significant presence in about 26 states. we got to go find the other 24, right? we, we got to be, you know, a truly, you know, across the entirety of the U.S. kind of operation. And the reality is, is that as my association gets bigger, our team gets bigger, our political impact grows, the chances of success grow. I mean, that's the reality. So, David, where can people find out more about the PCBA Act, PCBAA, and you? And what can people do to help you, I guess? I appreciate it, fellas. I mean, look, it, you know, being it, the chance to come on your show and talk about this is awesome because I know you reach a really big audience and a lot of folks who are very intimately involved in this. What I would say is get on social media and follow us. We're putting up a lot of content pretty regularly on Twitter and LinkedIn. I think that's the best source of what we're doing. Uh, you're going to see us inside iConnect007. You're going to see us inside EE Times, right? The trade publications that cover our industry. I think in the future, you're going to see us at the big trade shows, right? That's one of my goals going forward is we're going to have a booth. We're going to be handing out materials. You're going to see us in Washington. We just had our annual meeting. But it's as simple as probably going online and saying, hey, I want to follow PCBAA's content, PCBAA.org. But, but really, I think our social channels where you'll regularly see a lot of what we're doing and learn about how to get on our team. And, you know, to your listeners, you know, if you're part of a shop and you've listened to this conversation and said, man, these guys are out there fighting for us, have a conversation with your leadership, or maybe you are the leadership about, we want to talk to these guys, right? We are led by a great group of executives, folks from companies that you've heard of, Isola, TTM, Calumet, Summit, Sanmina, Rogers, DuPont, right? Blue chip names that you know about. We're happy to talk with you about what we're doing. I think there's a lot of value in membership. we got to get bigger before we can get bigger. Okay, so one quick question that's a little bit off topic, but I'm just curious, do you enjoy playing the Washington games? You know, so I spent a long career, or I spent most of my career, in D.C. working public policy for technology. And here's what I would say. I'm really proud of a lot of the very cool technologies that I've gotten to advocate on behalf of, right? I didn't build them. I couldn't make a space shuttle main engine work. I couldn't make a Blackhawk helicopter work. I think I have a pretty good understanding now of how a PCB goes into a submarine, goes into a satellite, goes into a cell phone. But I, you know, keep me away from the engineering side of it, right? I, I know enough to, to be dangerous, but not enough to actually turn out something that works. I think in Washington, there are a lot of folks who are there to do good. There are a lot of folks who are there to look out for folks who work and strive and want to build businesses and build lives and build their families in America. I really do think that. And here's what I would say. Those people don't make the news. It's being loud and being brash and sort of being controversial that gets you a lot of attention in politics. I think it sours our national mood about politics. I think it makes us cynical. There are plenty of reasons to be cynical about the political process and, and, and what goes on in politics. I share in some of those sentiments. But when I meet with people who say, I want to make sure we've got good manufacturing jobs in the United States. I want to make sure we invent important technologies for critical applications in the United States. I don't want us to lose a race in this technology sector. I want these factories in my district running three shifts. I want the parking lot full. I want these communities thriving. I do think there are lots of people in the government who want that. And when I meet with those people and we have productive discussions, I come away pretty inspired, right? I have that sort of moment where it's like, yeah, we can actually get some stuff done here. And if you've watched these communities spring up out of the CHIPS Act, you know, it's hard not to be a little bit inspired by what we are capable of doing in this country. And I try to focus on that rather than what you see on cable news, what you see on social media that would maybe cause you to throw up your hands and say, ah, oh, give up. I'm out of here. Like I get any number of Washington stories that would make you cynical, but I think I've got an equal number of stories that would inspire you. And a lot of it, you have an engineering audience, right? A lot of it comes down to like the great things that we need to achieve, right? We just passed the 51st anniversary of the moon landing. Somebody was talking to me the other day about the print circuit boards on the Apollo program that are now in museums, right? And they're gigantic and they seem heavy and slow by today's standards. But I could say, okay, we're going to go to Mars. That's going to involve a lot of really cool microelectronics and PCBs. And what I want to do someday is take my kids to those museums and say, yeah, like in some small way, 
we were a part of this. I was a part of this. Like we were building this stuff. We were achieving great things. You know, I'm getting a little sentimental here, but you know, technology has the ability to do some really cool and amazing stuff and change lives and move society forward. And it comes down to a lot of people listening to this show, engineers who tackle hard problems. And I would hope are just as inspired as, as I am a non-engineer in the application, right? When a rocket lifts off, when a submarine dives, when an electric car goes 300 miles, whatever it might be, the people that built that, the people that made it possible are like, yeah, I was part of this. I think that's a cool feeling. Well, David, we really appreciate you spending uh, your evening with us and enlightening us on, uh, on the, the PCBs Act. I really appreciate the opportunity, guys. I mean, this was a lot of fun. You guys are doing real important work here. I mean, 300 episodes, that is, that's an achievement unto itself. Good for you guys. <laughs> and we still have listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I can come back in the future and uh, tout some of our successes and let you know how we're doing in D.C. Yeah, that would be fantastic. That'd be fantastic, yeah. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at macrofab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or emails at podcast at macrofab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel where we talk about each week's podcast. You can find it at macrofab.com slash Slack.